Sam Luck It Goes. Do I have Brown Boy on? That's right. Hey, so th- welcome to the program. We are recording. How's it going today? Going good. I was just uh, uh, doing some work on my uh, Mo grandmother. So I see that you've got some sequential circuit stuff and some other hardware. So you're you're a synthesis, right? You're big time into that, right? <laughs> I'm really into synthesizers, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's cool to actually talk to someone, uh, you know, in this world where everybody's using soft synths, to actually see someone still using the hardware synths. That's that's always kind of in my in my heart. So glad to talk. Yeah, to <laughs> it's definitely different putting your hands on. Like I have a few software synths, especially that Arturia V collection. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. different when you put your hands on it and can actually um, manipulate it that way. Yeah, yeah, that's a big thing. I like what I try to tell people the one thing when you have have like a Moog, you know, or, or like a profit is the fact that all those control surfaces are part of your, your instrument. And that's yeah. how you actually can make your songs. Yeah. I'm going to kind of come up from the seventies, you know, with Emerson Lake and Palmer and Steve Wonder and Bernie Worrell. And, you know, when you watch them on a mini Moog, on a profit five or a Jupiter, or even a Hammond organ with the draw bars. It's right. like, that's part of how you play, you know? <laughs> and uh, especially in the 70s, the 70s had no MIDI. So it's not, uh, what I like to do is definitely connect my DAW into uh, some of my synthesizers to kind of get a perfect, perfect um, on on the um, on the grid type recording. And it really helps, like you can yeah, make yeah. a loop and then um, adjust and make your patch based on that loop. Uh, but with the 70s, it, it was just all raw recording. And if you didn't get it right, you just had to do yeah. it again. Yeah, sometimes you had like the early Moog, like Model 55s had sequencers and stuff on them, but it, they were all CV. Right. And, and it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, sometimes I like to do LFO sequencing. Yeah. You know, or you, 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 you take a bunch of LFOs and you use that as the trigger. And then you create these kind of looping LFOs. But um, yeah, there's the other stuff you can do. But we'll get into the, interview exactly um so i sent you the questions what we always like to ask the artists we talk to is like when did you first get into music like what age and then how we kind of progressed to where you are now so we start like at the beginning all right uh so when i was 11 i saw will smith do his little beatboxing routine with biz Marquis and men in black too and i really got as deep as an 11 year old could get into beatboxing and i wanted to progress to the drums from from there my parents would not get me drums because you can't turn them off um so yeah i I settled for (laughs) guitar and i my first guitar was a walmart first act guitar it was 148 Mm dollars and i remember that because they made me buy it myself i had to do chores to save money to get a guitar but i think that's a good thing because they uh it really gave me an incentive to learn it and from the guitar I, I actually did get some drums i got a bass and like putting it all together is kind of how i got into recording like i wanted to play guitar and then bass and then drums on top of it so did you start using like Tascam and Plastic four trackers or something to put that together or you were able to put it into something? No, else? my girlfriend at the time had a Mac that came with GarageBand. So GarageBand was my first oh, uh, And then uh, I got out of recording after we broke up and then um, 
after that, uh, I got into a program called Drumpad 24. It's a free app on the iPhone. And I wanted to have like an actual physical thing. So I got an MPD 26 and that came with Ableton. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got involved with Ableton. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That a, I kind of started how you like you did chores to get your guitar. Like I had a comic book collection and I sold it to get a Casio CZ 101. Ooh, <laughs> man, I, that's the one cent I wish I could get my hands on the CZ 101. It does have, yeah, there's, yeah, it is. The, the Arturia V collection comes with the CZ. And, um, it was, the CZ was like phenomenal because everybody thought it was a toy, yeah. but it actually was a pretty good synthesizer. And I was like, you know, and I, so I sold a whole comic collection, all these like Marvel Fantastic Fours and stuff just to get like 200 bucks so I could buy it. Um, and I got ripped off, but you know, but I got the CZ. <laughs> and then from there I, I moved up to like a Roland D5 nice. which is like a dumbed down D50 yeah. it's, like a, it's like a linear synthesis it had that capability of a D50 but it wasn't as de in depth um, but it, it could do it and then I got a, a, a Korg sequencer that had low disk drive oh, yeah. on it. And, and, and then a Tascam 4 tracker so then I had like a little thing where I could just take all those linear synthesis and that was a multi-trimble synth so you could actually take the D5 and do like multi trimble layer, you know, like, you know, 128 voices or something. Holy cow. And so you could, you could build like pretty heavy songs. And so I just, I had a band, but everybody, you know, stopped showing up. And I said, well, you know, I'm just going to put stuff together. And I, I'm in my 50s. So I grew up in the new wave era. Oh, right? yeah. I grew up, you know, what, what saw, I actually saw Joy Division, the video before he oh, died. Lucky you know? guy. <laughs> I, and I saw, I saw like the beginning of it, like with Joy Division turned into New Order, you had the Cure and Echo and the Bunny Men and all those new wave bands. And I was like looking in the video and like, what are they playing? Well, they're using the Minimo, they're using the Problem Five, they're using the D50. I'm like, oh. So I just would go to pawn shops and try to find stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think the 80s and, um, is probably that new wave is probably the best era for music because it was all uh, yeah. like live synthesizers, great energy. And um, people were just just yeah. happy to make music. What's cool about that era is like you know a lot of people think those synth bands were all like just synth, but like you listen to like New Order, and you listen to like uh, the Perfect Kiss. That song is like it's all it's like bass is the melody. The bass player is playing, and there's a lot of new wave bands. The bass is doing really heavy melody. So there, um, and the guitar is kind of flirting. Hey, sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Uh, Luckily, the segments are saved, so I and these are not recorded live together. Um, yeah, I me? got a phone call. Yep, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Maybe put it on Do Not Disturb. It'll it'll block. It'll, it'll trip the whole thing. It will just drop it. All right. So we're we're so we're back. So what I was saying is like the new wave era. Um, one of the cool things I was watching like a Jonathan Dem video for a New Order and the song Perfect Kiss, and they actually recorded that live. They did the video live, and they actually played it. And and if you really you watch a lot of new wave bands, like the bass is so much like, it's like kind of like John Rentwistle and The Who. The bass is really heavy in the melody of a lot of these new wave songs, even though there's all this synth going on and a lot of sequencing going on, but there's a lot of, a lot of bass being the, the heavy melody component. 
And that was always like a interesting thing for me watching videos back in the day when he actually saw videos. Yeah. <laughs> back when MTV but, was um, uh, music television. Yeah, yeah, it was real. <laughs> so, so when did you decide that you wanted to write your own music? I mean, I you you saw all these, well, you saw that, you know that you you got introduced by watching that that program. Um, but when did you feel like you were gonna do it? Would I write when you picked up the guitar? Didn't you say that I'm going to write my own stuff? Yeah, and I mean, that's pretty much how I took off. I didn't really learn anyone else's songs, to be honest. I still don't know how to play um, most stuff. Uh, I know how to play Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> but uh, pretty much everything I write is is all my own stuff. So uh, that's when I started writing music. When I started recording music was uh, 16. Wow. So that's interesting because a lot of people they'll start off you know with a cover band and and they'll 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 be playing like their heroes you know playing Zep, playing like the ACDC or whatever. But I was kind of like you. I was like I, I started a band when I was like sixteen, and I was inspired by like the Who and the Clash. And I'm like, well, okay, if if the, if the Sex Pistols and the Clash can just go out there and do punk and the Ramones are doing what they were doing at CBGBs, I got all these kids in high school say we're going to do the same thing, right? You know. And Nothing we wrong write our own stuff because we we're kind of, yeah, because we we're like, you know, that's the whole punk movement was this idea. You know, you listen to Black Flag or Who's Gonna Do or something, a replacement. It's like, you can just do it yourself. That you're not trying to be Jimmy Page, you know? Yeah. But, um, and I think that, 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 that's a really cool thing today. You see it now with all the hip hop guys and all the synth wave and DJs. Everybody's like learning how to just do it themselves. <clears throat> but you know, it's like when you feel, realized you had a, like a talent for music, who were your inspirations? Like, who did you, who were your influences or reference points? Uh, when I started listening to music, or uh, actually making it, I was not allowed to listen to anything but country music, which sounds like a disaster. Um, <laughs> so that's probably one of the reasons why I never learned other songs, because I really didn't like country music. But my parents didn't like the music that was on the radio. Like yeah. So um, I didn't really have too many inspirations one of the inspirations one of the reasons i wanted to play music was because i thought my dad could play guitar because he had a guitar but it turns out he has no clue how to play guitar so he just um, had it <laughs> yeah he just he just had it It was like decoration um my current influences are um definitely um like mandalorian i don't know if you've um seen him on instagram yeah, he's yeah. uh yeah so mandalorian sahab is definitely a, a big influence of mine i'm uh, just different people on on instagram right now that's interesting because more more kind of modern influence like i mean i grew up in, back in the day i'm like i'm a child of the 70s and uh you know i was a lot of what's going on in my household it was like they it was a big love for music my dad was a big motown guy nice. You know, he had like everything from Motown that you could ever get. My my older brother is like seven years older than me, so he had all the Zeppelin and the Hendrix and all that stuff. Uh, and so this the house was just full of vinyl, and so it was kind of easy to get into. And uh, you know, they allowed us to to create bands and play in the basement, so we didn't have any kind of restrictions. So that was that's kind of open. But it's interesting that I have run into artists that that have had. You know those restrictions that you know, but kids tend to rebel. <laughs> of course, <laughs> they want to, want to do something different than what their parents are telling them to do. But country music is interesting because I grew up. My my parents from my mom was from Appalachia, from Morgantown, West Virginia. Nice. 
So my my grandpa, he just like he was playing like you know Hank Williams and Johnny Cash. Well, that you know Wayland. That's Jennings, real country music that for sure. I don't yeah, I don't yeah, dislike yeah, real yeah, country music, um, the the stuff that has a story behind it. But the the modern pop country music is just formulaic yeah, that's and not what I'm into. <laughs> Folsom Prison. That's that's like my favorite album. It's like I'm gonna live from Folsom Prison. That's to me. That's like that's the real deal. Um, Johnny Cash, but uh, yeah, because I, I, you know, I, I like all genres. I mean, I listen to modern trance and side trance and anything that's out there. But like again, being a hardware synth guy, you know, watching guys like Keith Emerson with his big stack of Moogs, yeah. that was like kind of what like I've tried to recreate in my house. <laughs> I'm getting there. With all my I, have a, I have a ton of sets. Yeah. I I need to rack them up at some point. Yeah, it's just that like I think what's interesting about being a synthesis is that half the day I spend just building the sound. You know, I was just I I was just coming off my Mo grandmother using a sample and hold circuit to make like a kind of rotating patch, and you know I'm going with all my CV controlled stuff. So I've got like a Mother Thirty Two and a DFAM and a grandmother and an Arturia Mini Brew Two S, and I've got them all synced up with like Make Noise Math Module and a Morphogene. And I've got all this stuff and I'm kind of cross fading, you know, just running LFOs from one synth into another and just creating all this kind of madness. And I'll spend like hours just trying to create a patch, you know, and then create the song from that patch, you know, it's a five minute song after three hours worth of work. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's kind of what drew me, uh, drew me to synthesizers because like when you get a synthesizer, it's not one instrument. Like you get a guitar, it makes guitar sounds. You get a bass, it makes bass sounds, piano, piano. Uh, but when you get a synthesizer, it could be a pad, it could be a bass, it could be a lead, you know, that's um, yeah, definitely yeah. utilitarian instrument. And that's kind of the fun, just um, like, making your own sounds. Well, what did you like? Did, did you like the idea of synthesizers? Because like what I found is like I was in a band and then everybody stopped showing up. So then I was like, well, OK, now I got the synth. I can play bass. I can do the drums. I can do strings. I can do guitar. Then I can write, write the whole thing. And I don't have to wait for the guys to show up. So was it that you, you had you been in a band and then you said, we well, you know, I just want to do everything myself. Or you said, well, I'm going to do everything myself from the start. Uh, I've been in a few bands, but nothing that really kind of like materialized. Not, nothing that like really coalesced into like a music entity. I'm just kind of like jamming around with friends. Uh, how I got into synthesizers was when I got Ableton, it was a light version and they didn't really have like very good uh synthesizer ableton has some incredible uh native um plugins but yeah but, um yeah. the one i had i think i had um sampler had a drum rack and nothing nothing really like synthy um so my first synth was the arturia micro brute and i just wanted it for basses and leads yeah. and stuff and uh i just fell in love with synthesis from there yeah, micro boot, that's a really cool entry synth. It's kind of reminds me of like my CZ 101 because um, it's like very basic, but it, it just, you can really get a lot of it. I actually moved up from one of those to a 2S in the mini yeah. group. With the, uh, but it's just like, I like the state variable filter on it compared to like the Moog. It's got the classic ladder filter, but the state variable filter, you can do a lot of cool stuff with that thing. Um, and this is Arturia's. It's like every synth has a different tone. Like my Rollins don't sound like Arturia's. Arturia's don't sound like Moog's. Prophets don't sound like, you know, 
arterials. Like they all have their own. It's kind of like I try to tell guitar players that don't really know synths that you know every synth has its own kind of tone, and 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 it's like like there's a reason to get like a mini Moog from '74. And then one from you know, like seventy seven because they don't sound yeah. the same. My, it it's drives a, my wife crazy because yeah, I have know. so many different synths, and she's like, "What's, what's the difference? It's a synth." I'm like, "It's not just a synth. They sound different. They do different things." Yeah, their envelopes are different. Yeah, it's like Moog. Yeah, every Moog they've released actually has something about it that makes it unique. And so you go from year to year, and they don't sound the same. And there's a reason to to get it because it does things that the other one doesn't do. <laughs> you know, so you're like, say, yeah, my wife does the same thing. It's like, why do you need that? You already got one. I was like, well, it's not exactly like that. <laughs> I don't have this. Yeah, um, you can really yeah. see the difference. Like, um, the uh, the baby Juno, the JU06A, um, has yeah, that yeah. switch that you can flip to change it from a 60, a Juno 60 to a Juno 106. You could hear it's a big difference. Yeah. It's yeah, it's massive. Dude. There's since if you go back, you know, like you said, the 60 and the 106. A, a, a Jupiter yeah. 8 and a Jupiter 6. I mean, a Jupiter 6 is kind of a dissonance machine. It doesn't yeah. act like a Jupiter 8 at all. It just it creates all this dissonance. And some people say, we well, can't use it. Well, if you're doing experimental stuff like a brain, you know, you can't. It, it's very kind of dissonant. It does a lot of really strange, weird stuff that's not like typical, not stuff you do on a gig. You know, stuff is more experimental. But it, a lot of people like that's a very underrated synth. The Jupiter Six does like very strange modulation capabilities on it. That that like, and no one seems to be like everybody's into the Jupiter Eight, but the Jupiter Six can do some really freaky things. <laughs> the Jupiter Eight, you know? I think a lot of people are into it because it was so expensive and so out of reach for a lot of people. Yeah. So it, just but it has kinda... like classic sound. Oh yeah, for know? sure, a mythical. Um, mythical property to it that you know about it but you you probably never seen one in person you know you'll never own like an original jupiter 8 yeah so well it's really it's like kind of like a profit five you could only do five voices and then when you get to the eight finally you can do four finger chords yeah and i think that that's worth in the heart of the new wave you see you get duran duran using it real heavy because they're doing all these chord progressions that that you know no one was really able to get to Except unless they st- sat there with the mini Moog and they overdubbed it, overdubbed it, overdubbed it, and then the Prophet Five gave it, but then you can only do like an octave, and then maybe a three chord, uh, you know, hand. And once you got to the eight voice since like Oberheim's and and the Jupiter Eights, then it was like wow. The, then I, that then you started getting these lush pads. Game changer. Um, it's total game changer. You know that, that's and then then the DX7 kind of killed it. By doing the FM synthesis, which doesn't sound the same, no, um, and it kind of it's kind of tinny, and kind of you know the engineers loved it because it seemed like I heard a story that the engineers didn't like the analog synths because they said it took up too much bandwidth in the mix. Oh yeah, and I, it does. I can see that. Yeah, for sure, it does. And so then it's like it's not as discreet, and so they didn't like it. But then it's like, okay, well that's you know is it your job to decide what things should be. <laughs> You know, because it's a, there's a big difference in the 70s, you know, big monosynth tones till you get to D50s and DX7s, you lose it. And now people are bringing it back, but it's like music lost a lot with when, you know, when the monophonic and the big polysynth, analog polysynth got pulled out of the mix. But, um, yeah, that's just my complaint. But, 
Um, so your writing style, would you just say it's kind of like your synth wave or your uh, kind of more just alternative or new new wave? What would you say it is? Because it's hard to pin down a genre. You know, I, I always ask people and then people say, well, I don't want to be pinned down. Yeah, I don't um I just kind of go with the flow. I like to refer to the genre that I make as space funk because it's definitely a little bit uh, more funky than just lo-fi, but it's definitely not 100% on the grid, especially with the drums. So, like, it's kind of hard to say, but it really just, I, I sit down, I make a synth loop, um, probably lay it drums on, then bass, then a lead, and then that's a brown boy track right there. Yeah, it's interesting because the space funk is kind of like, like, I'm a big fan of, like, uh, Funkadelic, and they were kind of like the space cowboys of, of of synthesis uh and uh also that's why i kind of called my my brand of music expansive sound because i felt like well if i call it expansive it means like everything yeah and then you can just you can just like so one day i'm feeling some sun raw another day i'm feeling some johnny cash and i try to bring or i try to bring some punk aesthetic and try to do a black fat flag kind of nine inch nails you know punkish thing um, and so you like you kind of go wherever you're gonna go, and, and I have I like a, I like a lot of punk bands, like the Ramones and stuff. And they say, "Well, that's not synth music," but I think that punk aesthetic is in a in a band like Joy Division and Early New Order and Depeche Mode have that kind of punk aesthetic. It kind of comes out of that, um, and so having a little punk edge is not like you know really deviating from the spirit because a lot of new wave bands came out of punk bands yeah it's, it's really crazy how how punk was like just i'm gonna do it myself i'm gonna do it how i want to do it um and i think that's a the kind of attitude that musicians have now i'm gonna do it i'm not trying to be big i'm just trying to um, get my music out there and i'm gonna do it my way and i'm not and you don't need a, a record label anymore if you want to make money no. and so i think that kind of spirit is definitely alive and well right now yeah, that's why I like to interview people kind of in the underground market, like the with the Instagram world, which I find Instagram is is the best source. I mean, if every interview I've done since 2018 has been a band or a musician I found on Instagram um, or SoundCloud or something like that. And it really is where everything's going on. You know, being a musician for like 30 years, I find that like most of the new stuff is happening in places like Instagram and SoundCloud, those, those in YouTube that's where the, where the cool music can happen. You know, the stuff I want to hear, and I'm, I'm getting in, in this a while, I'm in my fifties, but I like hearing people, you know, experiment. I grew up with college radio and that's how I found things back then, you know, between college radio and MTV is how I found REM. It's how I found joy division, new order, because, you know, radio wasn't playing it. Yeah. No, and, they wouldn't. And so this is, this is kind of where I like to be because you know, music is, is, you know, the top 10 is cool for certain people, you know, top 50, but that's not where, you know, I see the innovation happens where we are, you know, that's where people try new things. You don't listen to the A&R guy trying to tell you to clone yeah. the last top 10 hit, you know, because that's all happens in the industry. They just want to clone something to death. Yeah. When you don't have to worry <laughs> about um, the modern sound or trying to, um, having someone breathing down your neck to make this type of thing or take that out, or you got to make sure this is in there. Uh, it's, it's creativity. And when you do stuff like that with um, mainstream stuff, you're an artist, but I, I like 
art that's more creative, more or less limits. Uh, the only limits that uh, you have are the limits that the artists put on themselves. And that's kind of why it's so nice to have a SoundCloud or an Instagram because literally anyone in the world with an internet connection can put their music out there. And if it's good, people will like it and it kind of draws people in. Yeah, I mean, a lot of great artists, you know, if you think about like, you know, just like hip hop, you know, you get these like collectors uh, that, that somehow, you know, they were on YouTube, like a big famous one. He's like, you know, Tyler, the creator, Earl Swisher, Odd Future. They they were just totally off the grid doing whatever they wanted. They ended up creating their camp vlog now and create this whole new alternative thing. And they were, you know, they're hip hop, but they like everything. And so the Camp Flogna kind of crowd is like they're, they're bringing not just hip hop bands together, but all these bands together. Um, and it's just because they were a, w- willing to try something different and they were outside the box. And they were, then now they're kind of mainstream, but they didn't start that way. They started because they just had ideas and they were going to do whatever they want. They threw their mixtapes out on the net and boom. Um, and I think that's what's going on today with everybody just able to get their mixtape out. You know, back in the day, you just sell it as a cassette <laughs> in the back of your trunk you show up at the barbershop and say, Hey, you want to hear this? <laughs> you play at the pizza shop and then hang out your, you know, pass out cassettes. Um, but now you can actually get your, your track, you know, if somebody in like Brazil is listening yeah. to your music and you're like, what? you know, what Argentina is like, what the heck? Like your, your reach is like wherever it is. And you know, you, your fans can be anywhere. Yeah, that's what's so crazy is like now it's easier than ever and also harder than ever because there's a lot more noise that you have to cut through. Yeah, that's why things like this podcast where I found it, like as a musician, this podcast I found is a way to get, you know, get my own music out there because then I'm talking about other musicians. Um, But it kind of pushes my music in a different way. So finding ways to get out there, you know, doing doing like sync licensing or, or, or producing other bands or playing on other people's records or doing engineering for people that they, they, they that's how you kind of have to work today. You just, you just, oh, yeah. you, and you, you have to put out as much stuff as you can um, and work with as many people as you can and get your, get your stuff out there. So there's, there's a, there's a lot of noise, but you can kind of differentiate yourself if you start finding the little niches, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, just, so you have to do something that's unique that other people aren't really doing. That's um, kind of why it's hard to say who the inspiration is. Cause I, I'm not sure anyone really is doing the exact same thing that I'm doing. Yeah. That that's kind of what, what I like about the individualism of, of like the independent artist is like, you're not trying to be the next whatever, you know, you just, you're trying, you just, you're just into your own sound and you're perfecting it. And, uh, you know, I, I was listening to Strange Drugs and I really, I like, I like, I like the kind of, like you have this style that I like a lot that actually sounds like a, a lot of dollless recorders. I know you're using a doll, but, but, but I like the fact that you're willing to not try to, you know, make it so clean that it's like not real. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's some, some people with the DAW have, have kind of not, utilized it in the way i would or the way i do it's like i use it to help construct something but i don't want to over produce it or make it so tight that it doesn't have any life in it yeah that's um so 
when I record stuff, like I, I put myself into my music. So when something's not perfectly on the grid, that's me. That's a, that there I am. So, I mean, obviously I can just quantize everything and make it sound super tight and dial it in and automate it to a, the nth degree. But I'm really just more about the vibe. Yeah, well, I think that's the thing about rock, you know, the kind of rock music I liked. I liked like bands like the Velvet Underground, you know, bands like uh, Big Star or Neil Young and Crazy Horse. And the yeah. thing about even like Neil Young, you know, like the difference between he, when he would do a Nashville recording like Harvest, like it was perfect, perfect pitch, perfect. Everything's like, you know, slide guitar. Everything's like perfect. Right. But then when he gets in the Crazy Horse, it's like he's the grandfather of punk. <laughs> You know, crazy horse songs are just, they're at, a little bit out of key. Beat's not always perfect. It's a little off. And and the thing is about that is like that, the, the imperfection of crazy horse is like perfection. <laughs> because it's like, it's like punk attitude even before punk. And yes, kind of, a lot of kind punk of bands paradox. will go, yeah, will cite Neil as their inspiration. He's like considered like the godfather of punk. Because, you know, you get Nirvana and Pearl Jam and tons of punk bands will name check Neil because his stuff kind of predated their stuff. Um, and it's, 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 it's it, to me, it's like that kind of understanding that, that the honesty of your music doesn't mean you need to do 50 takes to make it perfect. That sometimes that first or second or third take is actually the original intention of what you wanted to do. And if you keep on trying to clean it up, you actually are, 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 are hiding the truth. <laughs> yeah you're not um you're not cutting through like obviously you can go into a uh, beach boys level of um perfection or phil Spector. yeah phil Spector yeah, type stuff. yeah. <laughs> he, but honestly by the 50th take do you want to do it anymore probably not it's not fun anymore yeah yeah because I mean, you're, you're pulling the lifeblood out of it and i understand like you know, born to run is this kind of wall of a sound masterpiece and it took them six months and multiple overdubs, tons of changes, but it's kind of torturous, you know, yeah. and it's a really cool song, but like sometimes like if I listen to like, like Nebraska um, and doing that four, you know, four track demo of uh, Atlantic city is actually a little more honest, you know, from Bruce. So, so it's like, okay, I understand what happens when you overproduce and you can make something but do you really need to do that in every track? And I've gone and done things where, okay, I took three months to do a track <laughs> and I did like 50 overdubs or whatever. But, but you know, that's because I wanted to do it, but it's like, I don't want to do that every time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> some I, projects I demand. Yeah, demand. I mean, some projects you get to a point where like, okay, I'm trying to do something and it demands that, but like, I'm not going to do that in everything. You know, I'm going to, you know, like, it's kind of like each song, you serve the song. However, we, you know, one day you use a sampler, next day it's like it's all going to be mode. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it was going to be my Les Paul because hey, it's like that's what the song needs. And you do whatever it needs, you know. Yeah. Uh, when you get to that level of perfection, too, it's kind of hard to play it live without um, oh, yeah. people you going can't like, even do it. Yeah, right. Like, oh, <laughs> so you're a studio band. Yeah. It was like what happened with Steely Dan for many, many years. They like, they got to this point. And I love Steely Dan, but it's like they couldn't re reproduce those songs that they never played at live. Yeah, Steely Dan was actually take... who I was thinking of when I, when I was talking about that perfection, getting everything perfect. Um, Steely Dan yeah. was the, the exact one because yeah, they're, they're they the switched artists and yeah, 
they wanted to make sure it was absolutely perfect. But, um, I mean, that's their art style. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like what the Beatles did with George Martin, you know, when they stopped touring. They they became like a studio band. And and that's cool. And you create a, a, a piece of art. But it's very hard to reproduce. I mean, Steve Vienna eventually was able to get back on the road and reproduce it, but they had to rehearse, rehearse like how to do it. But, um, you know, is this to me, it's like when you think about it, there's a story about the who for Tommy. And when they were writing Tommy, they said we could do all these overdubs, but we want to play it live. So they they actually made the choice not to do the overdubs so they could actually play the rock opera live with four guys and not have to bring anybody else in. Um and I think that's kind of a lesson um, that, you know, some people don't don't learn today. <laughs> but, but it's like, like, can you actually reproduce that live without all your sequencers and all your stuff? Can you be, you know, do it with the guys you got? And, um, you know, some bands can, some bands, you know, have to use those backing tracks. And, you know, it's a different age today. You know, everybody's like, like an EDM DJ. It's all backing tracks. Um, but. You know, there's something about like giving yourself a limitation and working within that. Absolutely. So, so in the on uh, the album "Strange Drugs," how how did you did come about as a record? Because so many people do singles today, um, and that's all they do. But you've got like a ten song album. Um, what what did you want this to be thought of as like an album, like the way albums in the seventies are to be look, looked at as a a complete work that you should listen to, like as, as like in one setting? Or does how did you come about with um the, the whole idea for this record? Yeah, I mean, um, if you look at the titles of Strange Drugs, it's um pretty much uh, a guy um, has a girlfriend, um, she breaks up with him, he does a lot of strange drugs and he finds peace so he's telling a story like the typical album format is like telling that story and that's why you you want to present it as an album right exactly uh i like kind of put all this stuff together and brown boy kind of came together from that like i had this whole collection of stuff um i never sat down and said i'm going to tell this story but that's kind of the story that came out of it like, uh, mm-hmm. like writers, I don't think um, when a writer sits down, they're going to say, all right, I'm going to use this motif. Or, uh, most artists do anyway. And then they have you sit down in class yeah. and say, oh, well, this is a reoccurring motif. Like that might not be the way that the artist, uh, the writer actually intended it. Like I never intended it to be that way. It just kind of came out in that, that way. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. Sometimes you start a project. You know, you might have all these things there. Yeah, you have like a lot of songs lying around. And then as you write more, you start to see, okay, well, this one works with this other yeah. one. And then, you know, this, this mood is driving me to create another song. And, you know, it's, what I find is like sometimes when you do an album, you have, you'll have phrases from one song that kind of creep into another song, your recurring themes. And you say, oh, yeah, that, that works. And you, may, you maybe didn't plan it, but it starts to evolve that okay yeah this stuff is gonna work and i'm gonna start like tightening it up you know as you get closer to the end of it then you kind of once you're in the middle of it you can see the beginning you can see the end and you're like okay i now i know what this is <laughs> yeah that's a, a, absolutely how it came out and i honestly that's not the way i like to make music i would rather do a single than an ep than another ep than another ep and then an album but 
uh, it just mm-hmm. had all the the material. It all just felt right. So that's kind of just dropped a whole album. That's interesting because like a lot of bands I talked to today, they're kind of um, on the single train that, and and then maybe they'll do an EP of of collected singles. Just depends the way the market is. You know, the market is kind of driven uh, by a singles market. It, it's kind of like the fifties. You know, it, it, like back in the Motown day. You know all they did was singles and then they, once they had enough of them then they put the album out yeah you, you know, gotta but... stay relevant you gotta you know stay persistent the only issue is like with most albums um they're not all singles <laughs> to be to be honest yeah yeah there's a, the there's... whole idea of an album is there's gonna be songs that aren't gonna be hits exactly they're part of like a theme they're the interior tracks they kind of make the feel feel it out and and in the market you know, today it's not as accepting of that. Um, you know, maybe EPs are doing okay. So you could have the EP with a couple of songs that aren't like bangers or whatever. But um, yeah, I, I'm kind of a, of a, a child of the 70s. So like most of my stuff is, is album oriented projects. And I do do tons of singles, but like they'll end up on the album um, <laughs> and they were part of the album. Um, but yeah, it's just it's, it's a strange w- way things are being done today. Um, there's kind of like everything's happening at once. You've got guys bringing back new wave, guys into punk, you got traditional rock and roll bands. You know, like everything, everybody's old. The rock is dead, you know. But I could, I could name like ten up and coming rock bands that kick ass. You know, that maybe not everybody knows about, but it's not dead. There's still stuff happening. So it seems like like every genre is out there, all at once. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> still represented for sure. All that music that you you love from like people are even doing doo-wop still it might be like a yeah. modern doo-wop but it, it's still there yeah there guys i was listening to a band that actually sounded like 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 funkadelic and it sounded like sliding the family stone and i could have sworn it was like a 74 and it's actually a brand new band out of la and they sound just like like a funk band you know in like a real funk soul band like like really deep and they, they actually seem to have recorded fully analog. They like they purposely recorded live. They didn't do a lot of overdub. They they did it kind of old school, and they sound it sounds like the seventies because they actually recorded that way, and it was all new stuff. And they and so it's it was interesting. They were channeling like Curtis Mayfield and Sly and Funkadelic, and it, it was all new stuff. But they were you could see where they were coming from, and then people were like really excited because like wow they really they can do that and it's not like they're just a a, a a cover band they're actually doing new material um so that it's interesting today like like everything is kind of open out there you know we get people even doing like you know 1920s you know like flapper stuff you know <laughs> my daughter was like into this band that was doing definitely like, important in lo-fi yeah, he's like, wow. It's like, did everything goes. But um, so what? What are you working on on now for twenty twenty one? I'm just working on putting a EP together and then a live set that I can actually perform out whenever this COVID is is all done. Yeah. So when you perform, had you been performing um, as um, as 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 a brown boy prior to uh, COVID, or did you? start this like before did you ever get a chance to perform live as as brown boy uh not as brown boy i've been um i've done talent shows as uh, myself 
I've done open mic nights, but Brown Boy just kind of came about in September. Mm-hmm. I've been doing these kind of oh, tracks okay. for probably since uh, the lockdown. I started making these tracks before I was making like trap beats, and that was fine. It just didn't feel authentic to me because I don't really, I'm not super into trap music. Like I know how to make it, and people do enjoy the music that I make, but it it didn't feel authentic, and I didn't really have opportunity to use all my sense the way i wanted to so um, yeah i just made a, a single track that i really dig and it just felt organic and authentic to me so i just moved forward with that and then that's how brown boy came about that's interesting because i've seen some you know djs and edm guys are evolving because it's kind of what i found you know in that genre is it kind of has an aspect of disco where it could kind of die because it kind of it, some of the because it, it, I think the problem is is like the formula is so restrictive that it doesn't allow the creativity to get out of it. And once you are a musician, and you're like musicians like to evolve, and so if you want to like okay, yeah. I want to evolve out of it, it's hard in that genre to, to evolve and people accept it because they want it to be a certain way. Um, and so you have to kind of do a hybrid. And, and change it. And well, I'm going to change this. And you know, whether you still accept me, I don't know. I'm going to move into this other. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just interesting because to me, electronic music, the whole thing about it originally is experimental, and and so it's yeah. it it tends to evolve. It tends to go, you know, forward, back, middle, everywhere. And and to put a restriction into electronic music to me was like, okay, why are you doing that? <laughs> but um. Yeah, I'm kind of an old school guy. Very rock and roll. Yeah, it's just to me, it's like you gotta, you gotta just take it where it's gonna go. You know, like you know, like like the doors. You know, just open your mind, just do it. And uh, you know, the whole idea is, is like you know, mixing poetry with music. You know, it's Jim Morrison's whole thing. You know, and then taking taking what you can do uh, with like a punk aesthetic or a rock hard rock aesthetic or a metal aesthetic. You know, like what Trent Reznor did, showing that the synths don't have to just be kind of happy, flourishing stuff. They can be madly aggressive. Um, that you can you can approach it like like a punk rocker or a heavy metal band, and really kick ass. And you know, some people don't see it that way, but I think you know you you can have that kind of edge. And uh, that's what I, I enjoy people who who push the envelope and try different things. And it's cool what you're doing is uh, is that you expand and you know music i appreciate it man. going into this yeah with space i mean the idea of space is kind of like sun rod funkadelic you know bootsy collins and the space base i mean the whole idea of like universal cosmic stuff uh it's been in you know in, in music forever um so what what are your feelings i know we talked about a little bit about like um streaming services and the music industry you know, it's kind of like a double-edged sword that you kind of talked about, but what, what are your kind of feelings about the, the pros and cons of it? Uh, the, the pros are getting paid, right? <laughs> Everyone likes to get money for, for their art. So you kind of have to do business with like streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music, uh, but Bandcamp is definitely going to be um, that underground, that indie way to get money. So you can always put yourself on spotify there's a lot of people on spotify and that might help you connect with people but the modern music industry i don't think anyone's maybe people are but 
none of the people that I know are searching for a contract or a label or anything like that. And it's nice if it, it happens, but um, just doing it yourself. That's that, that whole rock and roll attitude. Like I'm going to do it my way and no one's going to tell me how to do it. And I can release whenever I want to release and there might be less money, but it's definitely a lot more fulfilling. Well, I find what's cool about it. Like if you back in the day, right, you would try to get on an indie label, right? But if you didn't, you know, get a hit, you dropped after two or three records. Yeah. And then, then you owe them money. Exactly. Isn't that a nightmare? <laughs> and then so, so, yeah. So then it's like, then your band dies and you can't even do it anymore and you're all burned out. Um, but with this kind of work, with to do it yourself, you can kind of have a micro level of success. You, you're able to, yeah, you know, let's say, it, you know, if I sell, you know, a couple thousand vinyls out the back of my trunk, I can actually make more money than I do on a label. Yeah. You know, if I do a couple of shows in New York City and Boston, I can actually validate why I'm doing this. Because I can yeah, that's um, <laughs> that's that's what's what's so it's almost like a like a like a cowboy thing. Like just it's the wild west in the music industry right now. Ever since streaming services, I think the big disruption was like LimeWire and Casa and Napster. Yeah, Napster. Yeah. They kind of blew it out because these guys were like, you know, they were had held the keys to the kingdom. They, you know, they held the door. They they kept you from get. They had the gatekeeper, right? You yeah. couldn't even get into the studio. You couldn't get anything recorded without going through their system. You had to buy into all their payola and all this stuff. Um, and and now, you know, you can you know you can run a micro batch of vinyl and make more money than most record deals. You know, yeah. if you market and you sell it right, uh, so that's the biggest part. Like, you know, <laughs> I think um, I think uh, the the modern music industry requires like a lot more work, a lot more business um, know how, like marketing, yeah. um, brand, branding. That's that's a big part of the modern music industry. So if you want to do it yourself, you're going to have to take on a lot more responsibilities. Then. And I, even yeah, even if you blow up on YouTube and some big label comes to you, the problem with the label is like you know the chances. This is the problem with the label, I and mean, like this is the story from Prince, right? Prince was on Warner Brothers. Everybody knows it, right? He he negotiated this deal to make a hundred million dollars, but it was based on him being able to sell six million copies of a record for every release for the next eight releases. Well, the only record that ever hit that was Purple Rain. Every record after that was way under that, you know, and the idea that you'd ever, he'd ever actually hit 6 million again, you don't do that. The Eagles only have one hotel California, yeah. you know, Fulio uh, Mac only has one rumors. Almost every band has their peak album and then they never make any more money. They never sell that level again, usually. Um, yeah. And so to make your deal based on some kind of unrealistic goal, is what the industry does. And so it's that you come into a label and you suddenly have this million selling record where the chances of that your next record's going to do that is like zip. <laughs> that's, so that's the double edged <laughs> sort of um, really figuring out how to do it yourself because um, you don't have any like crooked people trying to get you and um, you figure out what a, a royalty is, what a mechanical is. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you have to yeah, yeah. figure out how to. Uh, what the best deal for you is so if you do sign like say someone um, taps you to 
do a soundtrack for their indie movie and you have to figure out a mechanical if you get a piece of every video that's sold if you yeah. um uh, how streaming works into that like if it sells on uh, itunes or amazon do you get a piece of that um yeah, you just got to have a contract where you like you own your master. Yeah, you own your copyright. You get a percentage, and like okay, you know, and then you got guys trying to take seventy, and you're the writer, and they want you get thirty, and you're like that right there is like a no start. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, but that's the benefit of having to do it yourself if you are really committed to being a musician and you figure out how the business actually works. You don't have to depend on. Um, people that don't necessarily have your best interest at heart you can yeah yeah you see what a good deal switch, is like, yeah you get the 70 and they get 30 yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's how you work the deal it's like okay if you want it that's what you get yeah you when know? uh when i was selling trap beats some of these contracts were just ridiculous it's intentionally convoluted so you you can't really um figure out what they're trying to say so um that's most of the time they want to own the master and they want to own it for forever yeah no one owns my masters but me <laughs> yeah and they, then they want to give you like 50 50 or they want to do 70 30 and they're like you know i've seen some of them i i you know i looked at them back in the day i did do one one time that was like a 50 50 but then i didn't i you know it was it was bs because they, the problem with is accounting you know, back in the day, a couple of years, 10 years ago, I did one and in the accounting was really effed up because they, they, you know, you had to get your own accountant to challenge theirs. <laughs> and they, they always want to undercount the place. Oh yeah. They want to undercount the sales. And that's why a lot of people gone indie, you know, even big bands like Pearl Jam and Radiohead because they had to sue their record companies on the counts. Yeah. I think there's a uh, lion on the counts. You have to register <laughs> with, uh, I forget the service, but you have to register um with it's like someone's name like charles or something like that uh and they are the third party that will do the counts so if there's any disagreement yeah, yeah. you go to that service and they're they do the count for you yeah i mean i'm in i'm in bmi you know and then I, I did have a service that does the count for me uh, yeah so it's, it's yeah you do have to do it you have to check them and the thing is it's like okay you guys can't be honest <laughs> like right from the start you got an industry that like wants to undercount I mean it even goes to like I go to New York and my roadies got to count the people coming in because the guy running <laughs> the the restaurant wants, you know he's paying me about how many people come in in the drinks and stuff and so my guy counts 300 people and he tells me 220 came in mm, you know very so interesting. That, that, that's, that's kind of, kind of the kind of stuff they do and it's across the board so it's like it's good everybody's going indie and you gotta, you gotta protect yourself, you know, as a musician and an artist. And it's, I know a lot of artists don't want to get into business. That's why they're not business people, yep. <laughs> but um, you have to have a certain level of business. Yeah. You have to be able to have a conversation at least with someone that is a business person. Otherwise they'll trust. take advantage yeah. of you too. Yeah. You gotta get somebody to either represent you that you trust or to review stuff for you. Um, you know, that, that you trust that it's going to give you the right advice because it's like part of your work, you know, part, if you love what you're doing, part of it is to know it's to keep it protected, not get ripped off and get what you deserve, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a big part of it, but so are you working with other, 
other bands? A lot of people today do production work for other people or they collab. Have you been working with anybody else or going to plan on working with anybody? No, not really. I just um, make my own stuff. I do have um, a sample pack that's out, but um, if you want to sample my stuff, that's fine with me. I don't, I don't really care if we, especially with the ambient stuff. I don't ever really plan on, publishing any of that so if you feel like uh, and several people have if you want to make a a trap beat or you want to do some electro to it that's absolutely fine Um, that's really how i i collab with people people take my samples and then flip it into something else something else that's interesting yeah i think that's cool i mean i've all i've kind of been not in heavy into sampling as much as like a lot of people today Cause I just am so much into this, like just using my own gear to create stuff. But um, yeah, I do appreciate it. Cause I'm a big fan of hip hop and I do like, like when you get to like a band like Dale of soul or early public enemy is like the level of um, sampling and, and the artistry with it, like what you can do when you know what you're doing. <laughs> um, yeah. Kanye West is a crazy guy, but honestly the way he flips samples is like really incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't. Kanye. I wouldn't trust him with anything else. But if I need someone to flip a sample, Kanye is probably going to be the first person I'd look at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like the way he does that. Like Earl Sweatshirt lately, I like what he's been doing. He's been doing kind of like an MF Doom level yeah. stuff, um, and that kind of that kind of style has always been like I, I totally appreciate that. I mean, I can't even get anywhere near that. I, I don't. I don't know how. I don't really dive into that, but I do appreciate when I hear it. But um, so, um, are you? So you said you're gonna do some live shows when you can get out there. Like I think, like I'm trying to get out there. I'm working with a booker, but it's like my booker is like in in England. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I can't get and I can't like I signed with them just before COVID, and we were supposed to go do stuff in Berlin and London, and then boom, COVID happened, and I can't go. But now he's now he's calling me again, and it's like okay. I guess he's thinking something's gonna be open up by the, by June or something. I said, well, you yeah. know, maybe, but like, yeah, yeah, I'm open to it. So, are you are you gonna be playing like your local zone of places? Where if you yeah, got, if I'm you gonna, gonna be my own booker. You gonna be on booker? Are you gonna kind of play like your local area, or you try to go further out? Well, yeah, I since this would be my first Brown Boy show, I'm not really sure exactly how I would do it. If I would just like take a little DJ controller and, and play the tracks or actually take my like Ableton push or um, my, my Digitact and uh, load up a whole set on there. Probably, probably the Ableton push. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's a good that's, way to do it. The, the whole point of, of doing the local shows is just kind of iron out the kinks. And then the plan would be obviously I'm in Rochester, Buffalo, Syracuse, Ithaca, New York, Toronto, LA, you know, London, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, I, I used to lug around like my whole rig. I got like road cases, yeah. And so I could like I can bring all my mugs and stuff because they have like cases for them. But like, it was always expensive because I gotta get roadie. I, you know, I gotta bring get a van. And so like now, you know, I've been looking at like MPCs, um, and uh, you know, different controllers like even like Roland has like the MC seven oh seven. Yeah, and, and I could just put an archery on that, and then just bring a bunch of stuff into my MC seven oh seven, or get an MPC and load everything into that, and then maybe bring like an archery keyboard. 
And maybe and one euro, euro. Yeah, and I got a euro rack that goes into a road case. I said, like, okay, well, I'll bring that euro rack so I can be authentic and they kick off some crazy, you know, live analog stuff and actually play it. Um, and so, yeah, I've got a road case for my, for my euro rack just so I can actually do that. Because that's why when my whole claim to fame is, like, I'm not a DJ. I'm, I'm a synthesis. So if I come out there with my road rack, with that rack and that modular stuff, then I can actually, you know, hit them with like that, that heavy, heavy synth stuff, yeah. and actually play play it. But well, yeah, I mean that's that's the plan to to just play out once uh, it's safe to. I don't want to uh, gather people together and have them get sick. But um, I'm just I'm I'm trying to put together a set with probably a few synthesizers triggered by Ableton. Mm-hmm. Or my uh, Digitech. Yeah, so you use the grid, like a grid controller, like the Ableton Push. That's all, That's like a grid controller, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a little can... bit. It's more than that for sure. It's um, uh, you know, that could be your drum pads, that could be your actual yeah, uh, yeah keys, can... but it is a grid. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like the. I think um, there's a bunch of those controllers now. They made. They make, and it, yeah, you can zone them out to have the you know drum control, bass control, chord control. Yeah. And then you can like then you actually can live perform stuff compared to like a CDJ. I do prefer. I think that is a better way because it gives you, you, you. Then you actually have the connection. Exactly. Live. I don't know what I would yeah. do with like a, a actual uh, DJ controller. Just like press play and then switch yeah, to the next song. Jump, and then jump up and down. Yeah. Jump up and down. get get a helmet. Yeah, it doesn't really feel like. <laughs> I'm a musician. It just kind of feels like I'm pressing play. Well, I could more, bring a tape like up. You're an M- it's the old. Well, it's not even like like you're an MC more than even a DJ because the old school DJs actually on vinyl actually had to do something. But with the yeah. CDJs, you can kind of go on automatic if you want to. You don't. You could become more dynamic if you want to. But a lot of people I've seen is just, they don't really do a lot of interaction with the gear. It's all kind of pre set um and so that that that's kind of disappointing um and so i i I really am more into seeing somebody perform because like you know i I like to see i'm back in the day i go see the allman brothers you know i go see funkadelic live and i want to see him play so that's my preference though i know there's some people that can get into the club scene and i like that but as a musician i think i think it's more fun if you actually can play yeah I think most musicians would tell you that they want to play. They don't want to press play. They want to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm an artist, and I play instruments. I've never taken an instrument lesson, and I've gotten this far. So I want to show off that, yeah, that ability. That Have you thought about doing any of the live stuff that people do nowadays? I know there's like there's a lot of different people doing um like these live shows, streaming shows. Yeah, streaming. Uh, I've, yeah, and it's also seen like in I, LA, they have like drive-in performances where people actually play on stage. Like artists are on stage, but everybody's in their car, you know. Hmm. And you actually can play yeah, on stage. I'm open to it. Yeah, that that seems kind of cool. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> that's the best part about the the modern era. Like, you have to adapt. You have to like you can't just let like everybody not being able to leave their house stop you from actually getting to your money well yeah i mean there's a bunch of places now they're actually doing like you you book it like i I can't get to england but there's all these like 
BBC studios are doing live bands are coming in like the gorillas went and did this big concert in this warehouse and then they streamed it live but the full band was in the warehouse and they just streamed the performance like worldwide and you know yeah could you imagine 20 years ago if covid hit you'd have no way of actually doing you but you would sell dvds you know that it's not quite the same so it's, it's definitely probably one of the best times to be a musician yeah, I think I, I wanna, really, we definitely get more opportunities, yeah. I want to see how uh, COVID has, has changed the live performance. Like, will there be more options to stream from a live concert? Um, I think more they're going to have to. Like I definitely think they're going to have to, because I think that even when the live performances come back, they're not going to have capacity. Like, everybody's not going to be just, like, arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder. They're going to limit their capacity. Even with the vaccines, I've read that they want to keep protocols up to like, you know, 2022, 2023. So it's going to have to be a coordination of, of live streaming and, you know, people there, maybe half the house there or a third of the house there. And that's, you know, that kind of sucks. But, but that's kind of what it is until we get, you get, you know, 70% vaccination uh you know and it has to be worldwide because we're a global community and so it's a problem it's like if you don't get everybody then you can still get sick (laughs) so you know that's just kind of what it is but um yeah we'll figure it out i think a lot of people are trying to do cool stuff i've seen people doing rooftop performances and filming them you know drive-in theater performances you know from your house performance from your garage you know and, and monetizing it, you know, through Patreon and different things. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that can happen. So hopefully we'll be be on the cutting edge of that. That's what I'm hoping for. So like, I'm glad to have you on the program. We're going to put, uh, put the link to your Spotify and also your your um, your your main link to your music, which I believe you have like a link tree that we're yeah. going to include. We include the direct link to Strange Drugs, and um, yeah, we'll push this on all the platforms we're on. We're on eleven platforms, and we are part of Spotify. We're actually part of it. Anchor is that part of that company, but we actually do push the, this podcast out to Apple, Google Play, Radio Public, like eleven platforms, and we push out automatically. So we'll get this out there and get you a, a, a wider audience. Thank you what so we much. Like to do. Absolutely. And, uh, Within like an hour, we'll we'll have it. Sometimes it's like less than that, and we'll send you the top three links: the one for Spotify, the one for Apple, and the one for Anchor. I and appreciate you, it, man. You can do whatever you want with them, and uh, we'll push it on our channel as, as well. As if you see, we always push our interviews on our channel, so on Instagram. So thank you for being on the program. We will. Um, we usually follow up with everybody we talk to. Um, so you know, with six months or three months from now. If you're doing something or your new music's out, you know, feel free to contact us and we can help push it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, man.